Welcome to Odds and Ends, a podcast that collects stories big and small from every corner of UT. I'm audio editor Sarah Schleed. Since you last heard from Daily Text and Audio, a lot has changed. UT's campus has closed, students have gone home, the Daily Texan has stopped printing for the time being. The coronavirus outbreak has turned many people's lives upside down, and we want our coverage to give you listeners a sense of comfort and community during this time. This episode of Odds and Ends includes all the stories our reporters were working on before the university closed and shelter-in-place orders were enacted. Our future episodes will cover the various ways COVID-19 is affecting the UT community. But for now, we'll be taking a step back with stories from a simpler time. Austin, Texas, famously referred to as the live music capital of the world, is a place that seems to be pouring with the sounds of music at every corner. From the sidewalks of legendary South Congress, Great Texas women right outside King Sabine Dining Hall here on campus. Live music is a vital aspect of the city, and it's as ingrained into Austin culture as 36 or the South Congress Bats. But does being the live music capital of the world translate into a booming and sustainable music industry? What is it really like to be a musician here in Austin? It's almost a catch-22 with music and Austin sort of branding itself as the live music capital of the world. People don't necessarily realize that there's really just not a lot of money floating around in it. Tickets are very cheap and you know even a packed house and a big show doesn't yield as much money as people think it does. That was Jim Hampton, a songwriter and guitarist based in Austin. He thinks Austin is still a young city that doesn't have the donor base or infrastructure to sustain a large music industry. If you want to blow up, you do have to eventually leave Austin because there's just not as many ways to do that. We don't see many Austin bands getting big and then staying here. We see a lot of artists that are already successful moving to Austin because it's a cheaper place to kind of make your base of operations. Maddie Hatchett, advertising and radio television film junior at UT, plays in a local band called Caravan. She explained to me the difficulties of the industry here. It is really hard to make a living off of music in Austin. I feel like there are better cities you could do it in, you know, like in LA or New York. It is doable, though. Like, the money's there in music anywhere you go. You just have to hustle. What I've seen a lot of my friends do here in Austin is maybe they'll make most of their music in Austin, but they'll, like, periodically, like, fly out to different states to kind of, like, network out there. And maybe they'll try to get, like, their music placed in, like, an ad somewhere or, like, some company. But, yeah, it's a really rough game. Tony Presley, co-founder and label manager of Keeled Scales, a music label here in Austin, has run into the same experiences as Jim and Maddie. We have peers in New York and LA and Nashville that make a living doing this type of stuff. And almost everyone I know in Austin is doing this on the side or doing this as like a part-time job because they have to do something else to kind of fill in the gaps. And everyone is just as passionate as people in other places, if not more. These difficulties aren't exclusively reserved for the more seasoned players in the music industry. Electrical engineer and freshman Sophia Nance, who is originally a musician from Little, Texas, 
describes her experience in the Austin music scene so far. It was a challenge, but it was like really possible in Laredo. It's a small town. People hear about you and then you get gigs and suddenly you're doing amazing. In Austin, it's pretty competitive. I've played a few gigs, but I still feel like I haven't gotten too far because there are so many other artists and stuff. And like, not to compare, but you really have to be different. Even though Austin has these historic music venues and festivals such as ACL or South by Southwest, according to the local musicians, there still needs to be a major systematic change for it to truly become the thriving arts and culture destination that it claims to be. I'm not knocking like the live music capital of the world aspect of our city. I just think it would be great for other aspects of the industry to catch up, to really build an infrastructure here that encourages artists to stay here and work with Austin-based labels. We're getting there, but there's still a lot of appeal to signing with labels in other cities too. There is no major record label here in Austin, and I think it's going to take a big label coming in here, just more managers, just something. There needs to be a spark that ignites here. Even if we have like one artist in the next few years who I think really pops off in Austin, that will dramatically change the scene here and create more work for people who are trying to work in the music industry. Other musicians say that on a micro level, some of the changes needed to improve the situation can come directly from the fans themselves. Ultimately, if we want to make Austin a sustainable place for musicians to live and actually be professional musicians and become kind of the destination that we talk about it like it is, it's going to come from the fan base. It's going to come from the general public recognizing that music in particular is expensive to make and it's worth more than I think we're giving it right now. Despite the challenges and uncertainties that exist in the music industry, these local artists love what they do and continue to strive towards their professional goals. For some people, it could be like being the number one artist in the world or something. But hey, for me, I just want to pay the bills with my music and that would make me so happy. I don't need to name Grammys or like play ACL or like tour all the time. Like I don't have any of those particular goals. I just want to like be a professional musician in, in whatever case that looks like. I just know music is such a big part of my life. Like I don't have to be the biggest star in the world just to be able to play for a living and do what you love every day. That would mean so much to me. Like this industry it's it's crazy it's wild but like it, it's for me austin might be the live music capital of the world but there are still many questions surrounding the state of its music industry that need to be answered how do we get people to care or like how do we get people to start paying for it or how do we get people to stay here when they blow up or when they get successful because austin as a city needs that as much as the people that live here need that for The Daily Texan, I'm Melissa Cortez-Santiago. It is an impressive feat to be a student on UT's campus around election time and not be asked, are you registered to vote? For many students, the answer may be yes, but another question often follows. Where? Where are you from? California. Okay, and are you registered to vote in California or Texas? California. Radio television film sophomore Cassie Davis is an out-of-state student who has never changed her voting registration to her new Texas address. Because I do vote by mail. Davis says she just never saw a reason to make the change. I honestly just haven't thought much into it yet, <laughs> unfortunately. 
Cassie Fibio is a Texas Votes Program Coordinator at the Annette Strauss Institute for Civic Life and a fifth-year PhD Communication Studies student. She gave me her thoughts on whether or not out-of-state students should change their registration when they arrive at college. I think that's totally up to the individual voter. So when I was 18, I was like all about my local elections, like ask me about my county commissioner. I had thoughts, which is very strange for an 18-year-old. Students like Sophie Hart, psychology sophomore and former Los Angeles, California resident, feel less strongly about local and even national politics. Uh, did you register to vote in Texas? No. You're still registered in LA? Um, I've never registered. <laughs> so, yeah, I've been too lazy to figure it out. Okay. Do you plan on registering to vote here or in California? Um, I'd say probably California. Okay, and why is that? Probably because it's more difficult to register here as, like, an out-of-state, is what I've heard. I don't know. I don't know. Anthony Zhang, Texas Votes President and Chemistry Senior, says the perceived difficulty of registering to vote as an out-of-state student may be a misconception. So, like, there isn't anything special. It's just, like, it's the exact same as any other student here. Like, once you have your keys and you, like, set foot in your new place, like, you can register right then and there. Zhang says that one of the hardest things about becoming a Texas voter is keeping up with the candidates you'll be voting for, even for him. I will, like, admit on the record that I don't really know, like, every single incumbent. I don't know what some of these offices even do. And I'm, like, the biggest elections freak, like, on this campus. Maybe, like, there's, like, two more freakier than me. Phoebeo expresses having a similar issue when she registered as a Texas voter. So when I moved here from Indiana, I had, like, no clue, like, what a railroad commissioner did and like the reality is is that person is incredibly powerful because they have most of the say over what's happening with oil in Texas um, which huge right um, additionally I would direct them to like doing something as simple as reading local newspapers right um, that's who's going to truly cover what's happening um, maybe in like city council or with your county commissioner's court for some out-of-state students like government and history freshman Alls and Kelly the motivations to become a Texas voter go beyond convenience. Like, government's kind of my thing. That's why I wanted to do it. So I always kind of knew I wanted to switch and vote here instead of Washington. Got it. And why is that? Um, well, I vote Republican. So being in Washington, that didn't really make much of a difference. I felt like my vote wasn't really counted. So being here, I knew that that would actually matter a lot more and keeping Texas red the way I would like to. The ability to vote in Texas is important to students like Kelly, but some states, like New Hampshire, are looking to change voting residency laws preventing out-of-state students the ability to vote on their campuses. Phoebeo struggles to grasp the logic in the new regulations. States that are not allowing out-of-state students to vote in their elections, I think, are missing the point that most of those students spend more of their year in that state than they would out of state. Those students in the census are counted in that state. They go toward their numbers. So like, it doesn't align with even how something like districts would be drawn, right? Because census-wise, they live there. Groups like Texas Votes are working to make sure the next time they stop you on your walk to class and ask if you are registered in Austin or even your hometown, the answer is yes. For The Daily Texan, I'm Addie Costello.
The bells of the UT Towers Knicker Carillon make some of campus's most recognizable sounds, but they're not the only set of bells on campus. Hanging from granite pylons outside of Bass Concert Hall are a second set of bells that are slightly more unusual. The nicest way anyone that heard them has ever described them is uh, quaint, because um, apparently they sounded really bad. They weren't tuned particularly, weren't tuned particularly well. Austin Ferguson, a graduate of the class of 2015, is a professional Caroliner for the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Austin got his start playing the Carolina at UT. To say he knows a thing or two about bells is an understatement. Most Carolines are at universities or, or churches, and I think it's it's they're so rare. There's less than 200 in North America. Uh, so Austin, or UT, UT has got something very, very, very special. The less than tuneful bells, as unofficial UT historian Margaret C. Berry put it delicately, are known as the Burleson Bells. The Burleson Bells were cast to play only three songs, The Eyes of Texas, Dixie, and Will You Come to the Bower, an Irish tune played at the Battle of San Jacinto. The Burleson Bells were given to UT by a then-anonymous donor and chimed atop UT's first building, the Old Main, from 1930 to 1934. But in 1934, Old Main was demolished, and construction of the current 307-foot tower began. They were put in storage for years and years and years after Old Main was demolished and then the current main building and tower were built. In 1937, the tower was completed, and the first of the bells we hear today were placed at the top. James Kearley, biology senior and leader of the UT Carolinas Guild, showed me what a day in the life of a Carolinas is like. Before we rode 27 stories to the top of the tower, James played a warm-up on the practice carillon. So this is our practice carillon. Um, so it's a, obviously we can't practice up at the top of the tower because, you know, annoy a lot of people. Um, so it's a one-for-one -one replica just connected to these chimes. So we store all of our music here and we come here, it's like kind of a room to practice and, you know, organize and things like that. The practice room is a sort of headquarters for the guild. Its walls are covered in awards, official recognitions from the university, and letters from the 90s, written by kindergartners to a man named Tom Anderson, the late Carolineur who played the Tower Bells for over six decades. You can probably see all of the uh, um, <laughs> things around the room, so Tom Anderson, was uh, the the uh, the Carolineur um, since the fifties? Um, he he like he was the sole guy that played. Oh, Tom! He was just absolutely hilarious. Um, when I first I met him when I was a freshman and I was practicing and he walked in and of course I was a little bit soft, a little bit uh, starstruck because you know you read about him from all these old newspaper articles and stuff like that from you know the eighties and nineties. And he told me he I, I was just kind of introducing myself and talking to him, and he said, "Yep, this one of the first things he said was, yep, this year's my piano birthday. I turn 88, and I just like the keys on a piano." Tom also had a reputation for being a jokester. My favorite Tom story, you know, he was known for his very very dry sense of humor. And my favorite Tom story, when he told me this, he laughed so hard he cried. Um, when Joseph Stalin died back, I don't, I couldn't tell you what year it is off the top of my head, but. When Joseph Stalin died um, for his concert that day, Tom went up in the tower and played the, the Stephen Foster song, Masses into Cold, Cold Ground, and which I think is hilarious. You can never get by with it today, but I think it's hilarious. 
And apparently someone called the House on American Activities Committee on him because they thought he was a communist that was, like, sympathizing with Stalin's death. And he got interviewed and, like, interrogated and everything. And I just think that is the funniest thing. He's just giggling about 40 years down the road that he thought it was hilarious. In 2016, Tom Anderson passed away. He was 93. He was always very willing to talk and share share his experience and and... Uh, and a first-hand history again, which was, was I think, really beneficial, um, uh, especially, you know, because he'd been playing since the 1950s. He knew everything. He witnessed so much. It was a, a real loss when he passed away. But, I mean, he was, what, 92, 93? Uh, so talk about a, a life, uh, a long life well lived. Ever since 2016, the student-led Carillon Guild has overseen operation of the Carillon, they decide what music to play and who should be admitted into the guild. We do have a lot of liberty um, in how we play. So we have basically access from 8 a.m. to 9 p.m. every day. Um, so as long as we don't, you know, kind of push those boundaries, we kind of have a lot of like freedom over like what we can play, when we can play it. And um, it's a very nice, nice perk. You'll see when we go up, but we I call UTPD every time I go up and down um, just so they can turn off the alarms for the doors up there. After James called UTPD to let them know we were on our way to the top, James, the other guild members, and I took the elevator up 27 floors to the observation deck. To get the rest of the way, we walked up several flights of stairs, directly behind one of the tower's massive clock faces. We joked that we were close enough to have made shadow puppets on its face. At the top of the tower are the Carillon's batons. The batons are wooden sticks that act like the keys in a piano. They make it so that the Carillon can play the massive bells with little force. I always refer to the Carillon as the people's instrument because it is uh, simultaneously, one of my predecessors at Mayo described it both simultaneously as uh, one of the most democratic because everyone can hear it and autocratic because one person controls what gets played. As the sun set, I stepped outside through a small window to take in the view. The wind was howling, and the 56 bells, some weighing thousands of pounds, thundered overhead. It's difficult to imagine what UT looked like in 1952, when Tom first began playing let alone in 1931 when the Burleson Bells chimed atop a different main building on an almost unrecognizable campus. By 1981, it had been almost 50 years since anybody had heard the Burleson Bells. Preparations were already being made for UT's centennial celebration, which was two years away. Sometime in the, I believe it was the early 1980s, they were installed outside Bass in the current configuration that you see. It was also revealed that the bells were donated by Albert Sidney Burleson, a U.S. representative and postmaster general under President Woodrow Wilson. When it was time for the centennial celebration on the weekend of October 1, 1983, the Burleson bells played again for a new generation of students. Programs from the weekend celebrations included performances by the antique bells every half an hour. To my knowledge, that's the only set of... Uh of bells from that French foundry in the state of Texas. There aren't very many bells from the mic at all uh, extant, but the fact that, that the university has a, a, a full melodic set of them is, is, is something special, actually. I think it would be, uh, I always thought if we could, you know, if we could solicit funds from a donor to 
for them to be wonderful. But I don't think there was enough interest in that just because they apparently their reputation of sounding crappy for the first season or what. The eleven Burleson Bells may not be known for their size or for making beautiful sounds, but they serve as a reminder for all the changes that UT has seen, including the changes that Tom Anderson, out a little window in the tower, watched for over 60 years. Austin Ferguson is eager to see how the Carillon's role changes in the future. Involve it even more in campus life. Make it one of those things that, you know, a student group can come and say, oh, you know, we're having X event on the West Mall or something that the Bells are going to play for us. How awesome is that going to be? Um, just, you know, having that level of kind of hype almost uh, uh, throughout the campus, I think, would be would be, would be wonderful. For The Daily Texan, I'm Will Brooks. Austin, Texas has always been a meat eater's paradise. Critically acclaimed smokehouses like Terry Black's and Franklin Barbecue sell fatty slabs of brisket to eager tourists and locals alike. Austin's own P. Terry's Burger Stand is known for its classic beef burgers and thick malt milkshakes. And Banger's Sausage House and Beer Garden boasts over 30 different varieties of sausage, including ones made from duck and boar. But like a number of other aspects of Austin, the food landscape is beginning to change. What was once a small orbit of vegan and vegetarian eateries has begun to transform into a raw food nebula that may someday rival vegan epicenters like Los Angeles and New York City. I definitely think Austin in particular is growing out of all the different places I've visited within Texas. It's definitely the biggest, I think, vegan vegetarian community compared to other um, cities outside of Texas. It's definitely smaller than other places I know of. That was nutritional science freshman Yasmin Chua discussing Austin's growing list of vegan and vegetarian options. Across the United States, more and more Americans have begun to adopt vegan and vegetarian diets for environmental, health, and social reasons. Biochemistry and Plan 2 senior Molly Schlamp first became vegetarian during her freshman year after watching a few documentaries about veganism during a trip to Chile. A lot of people on my study abroad uh, trip ended up watching all these documentaries about um, veganism. And while I don't know how much I trust all of the kind of sensational things that they say in documentaries like that, it seemed to me to be a very easy opportunity to just make a little bit of difference. A little bit, a li if I can do a little bit to lessen the effects of climate change, if I can do a little bit to lessen the impact of cruelty and suffering, and I already wasn't that attached to meat, I didn't see any reason not to go ahead and work on that. Enrique Dusan, head chef and owner of the Austin vegan food truck Kitchen for the Soul, or Cocina para la Alma, first became vegan after the eating habits he adopted at his high-stress corporate job led to health problems. I was in the advertising world, which, you know, is very, is very hectic. Marketing and advertising, I work for big agencies. I was in New York and Miami and, and you know, I was your eating schedules and, and, and your habits are not the best when you have long meetings and all that. And I had a lot of stomach problems. Went to the doctor, ended up that I had an ulcer and he recommended that I stop eating meat and I did so and I felt the difference. 
the difference was amazing. I, I lost weight and I felt so good. And from there on, I, I started a journey for health that became a journey, a spiritual journey. Gusan first started selling vegan confections in Miami in 2005. He eventually opened his first iteration of Kitchen for the Soul in Colombia before moving it to his current location in Austin roughly nine months ago. I was I was living in Miami and and I had already I had already been vegan for for a number of years, but I was I was looking for options for options on on food and back in the day it was a lot more difficult to be vegan and to have alternatives to find places to eat. So I started creating, especially I I wanted to create sweets. So initially I created a, a line of a natural candy that was vegan. And that's how I started. I started with the candy business, and I used to distribute the candy to different stores. And then I started blogging about about vegan food, as I said before, known as Vegan Fusion Chef. Kitchen for the Soul is located in the Spider House Cafe Courtyard on Fruit Street. The restaurant's close proximity to the UT campus means that many of Dusan's patrons are students. But Dusan believes that some older residents are beginning to develop a taste for his vegan food. Noticed uh, over this last few months something interesting, and I always tell people when people ask me, I said it's really interesting that I attract the people that are the students, the young millennials, and and and, and, and but we also attract their parents. Like a lot of the students bring their parents. Maybe the parents are in town visiting, or or they some of them have older people that live here. But it's interesting that both groups visit me the young students, but also their parents. Not only is Austin's list of quality vegan eateries growing, but its non-vegan restaurants are also beginning to curate more eclectic vegan and vegetarian options than just the normal traditional side salad. There are a lot of places in Dallas that I will go with my family or friends from home that I end up having to eat salad, and it's a salad that's supposed to have chicken in it, and then I ask for it without chicken, but it still costs as much as it would have if it had chicken, which annoys me. Um, But I haven't had that kind of problem in Austin, ever. Austin's famous burger and barbecue restaurants will remain a staple of the local culture for years to come. But as Austin grows more diverse, both culturally and economically, new vegan and vegetarian restaurants will likely jockey for position on Austin's list of popular eateries. For The Daily Texan, I'm Wyatt Robb. That's all for this episode of Odds and Ends. This episode was made with the help of audio producers Aurora Berry, Harper Carlton, and Divya Jagadish. If you want to hear more from The Daily Texan, subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a story to share about how COVID-19 is affecting you, send a one-minute audio recording with your name and major to podcast at dailytexanonline.com, and we will include it in a future project. I'm audio editor Sarah Schleed. Thanks for listening, and stay safe.